All right, good morning, Risen Hope. Uh, Rob Arias here. I am delighted to be with you guys once again. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, and as we're turning there to the beginning of the Bible, uh, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas, belated uh, that is, and a Happy New Year. Uh, we are leaving 2020 behind. We're all happy for that. Uh, and we are in 2021. So I am excited to be with you guys on this first Sunday of the year. And uh, again, we're going to be going to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 13 verses for us. And then I'm going to jump actually to verse 21 to close off. So Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither, n- neither excuse me, shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to, them, to, the, to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, wom- the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now let's jump over to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your grace upon us, for your provision, Lord, for the ability to come together Uh, to be together by way of technology, Lord. Uh, I thank you for your word. I pray that even as we record this, uh, Lord, that that, uh, when this is uh, received, when this is watched, Lord, that our our hearts would be opened, uh, that we would be receptive, Lord, to what you have for us. Uh, Bless us, Lord, and and help us to to be honest. Uh, and, And again, just be receptive as to what you want to do in our lives through this text. Be with me personally, Lord. Help me to communicate well uh, and to be used of you, Lord, for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. All right. I want to begin uh, by introducing an idea that I'm sure you're very much aware of. First impressions. First impressions are important. I'm sure you've heard something like that before. Uh, First impressions maybe when it comes to meeting the new boss, right? First impressions are very important. Maybe you want to make a first impression when it comes to uh, the in-laws. I don't know if you remember meeting your in-laws for the first time. Maybe they were checking you out, you were checking them out, uh, and the first impressions were very important. Maybe 
Uh, it was the first time you met your spouse, right? Maybe you remember you made a good impression or a bad impression. Uh, or maybe, um, maybe you haven't met your spouse-to-be and you're hoping that you'll make a good first impressions. First impressions can be, not always, I'm not going to say that, but can be very important and very telling of what will come in the future. And that's kind of one of I want to focus in my introduction here. Uh, let's take it to a different field. Maybe, maybe a theater, maybe a play. Maybe you've bought your tickets and gone to a play, sat in the audience, and the curtains roll back, uh, the lights come on, and the actors come onto the scene. They deliver their first lines and uh, act their first scenes. And many will tell you, maybe from those first impressions, they will be very telling of what will come afterwards. That is certainly true of one of my favorite movies called The Prestige. Maybe you've heard of The Prestige. Uh, it was released in 2006, and it stars Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, uh, Wolverine and Batman. But that's another role in another movie. Uh, so the movie is essentially about two magicians rivaling each other. They're always out to outdo one another. And they're, they're, they will stop at nothing to do that. Uh, it's kind of scary what they're willing to do. And very much like Christopher Nolan fashion, it's very much like a riddle that you, you're, you're to figure out. And the ending is quite, you know, telling and quite revealing and shocking. But it is said about uh, the prestige that the first, the very first scene is very important. It's only about a minute and a half or so. And it's narrated by, Mike, by Michael Caine a famous British actor whose voice is, is hard to miss. Uh, and he reveals some information in that first scene that really is meant to unlock. It's m the information is meant to weave through the rest of the movie. Uh, and if you're paying attention there, the movie will make a lot more sense as you keep going. And that is precisely why we are going to the beginning of the Bible. I think there's a lot in Genesis chapter 3 where many uh, huge things happen where, where it will reveal to us a lot of helpful information as we look further in Scripture, as we look further in history and humanity and who we are. Uh, and I encourage you, I encourage you to, uh, to look at it that way, to understand that these, uh, these quote-unquote actors or characters, meaning God and man and the serpent, come onto the stage and there's a lot to learn from them. I want to read to you uh, what Herbert Lockyer says about the beginning and how it's important. He says, Genesis is the foundation upon which the entire revelation rests, the root out of which the rest grows. Truths found here are developed in successive ages. There are truths here in the first chapters of Genesis that certainly develop and certainly are very telling of who we are, who God is at the core, and who the serpent is at the core. Uh, so I want you to consider that because I think it will help us to combat Satan in a lot of ways, and it will certainly help us to appreciate who God is and his perfect fl plan for salvation for us. Now, I do want to encourage you here to be honest. Uh, I prayed for that as we began here, to be honest, uh, to be receptive, for your heart to be open, because there's a lot that I'm going to talk about that is going to reveal who man really is at the core. Uh, and it might be very challenging. I hope that it is. It certainly has been for me. Uh, it, it, it's revealing, again, uh, as far as who we are at the core. And that is exactly why uh, I've entitled my sermon, The Default Mode of the serpent, man, 
and God. The default mode of the serpent, man, and God. So let's begin with the default mode of the serpent. For that, we go to the first verse. Let's go back uh, and read it one more time. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here is our first character onto the stage, the serpent. Now, I want to make one clarification here. Uh, You probably already know this, but I want to give you some evidence for that. The serpent indeed is Satan. For one thing, small clue, but important clue, is that when the serpent addresses Eve and says, did God actually say, in the original language, uh, when the serpent uses God, he does not use the personal Yahweh. Uh, name of the Lord, which again means the Lord. It gives supremacy to him, ownership to him. Uh, It basically is saying he is creator of all, and the serpent does not use that title, indicating that he is certainly an enemy of the Lord. Uh, Then we have maybe more concrete proof that the serpent is indeed Satan uh, in God's word. In Revelation 12, 9 and 20, verse 2, John says that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So we're dealing here with the enemy of the Lord, Satan, that comes to Eve to deceive her. Now, uh, secondly, and maybe more importantly, I want to talk about the default mode of the serpent. Now, maybe another term that you might be familiar with uh, is modus operandi. It's actually a Latin term, which means a particular way or method of doing something, especially one that is characteristic or well-established. I want to look at the way um, that the serpent goes about deceiving us, uh, its modus operandi, its default mode, how it, uh, how it, it is characterized, um, and its, its way of um, getting to us in a way. Uh, For that, I want to look at the word crafty. It's mentioned there in the first verse. Uh, It's described as crafty. Now, if you're sitting in your living room there, which you probably are, that's what I do on a Sunday morning, uh, I want you to maybe turn to someone else uh, and give them a synonym for the word crafty. Maybe there's some younger ones in, uh, in the living room with you. Uh, that's one of the benefits of doing the recorded thing is that maybe you can talk a little bit. Uh, give yourselves a, a synonym for the word crafty. Give you a few seconds here. Uh, maybe you came up with the word cunning or deceptive or shrewd. I like that one. Or my personal favorite, subtle. Subtle is the way it kind of reads, but I think subtle is the way you pronounce it. Subtle. All these are descriptive words to really uh, get at the the way and uh, the character of Satan. Let me give you a definition for subtle. It's short. It's simple. Subtle means making use of clever and, di- and indirect methods to achieve something. Making use of clever and indirect methods to achieve something. And this really, in a lot of ways, uh, not always, but in a lot of ways, really describes who Satan is. Clever, indirect in his methods, to really try to achieve what he wants. Now, obviously, if you look through Scripture, there are other titles, there are other descriptions, and I want to give you some of them now. Satan uh, is called the enemy in Matthew 13, 39. He is called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Uh, the ruler of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2. 
the adversary in 1 Peter 5, 8, the accuser of God's people in Revelation 12, 10, uh, and lastly, the liar and father of lies in John 8:44, the liar and father of lies. And that's what I want to concentrate as I move uh, ahead here, as I move forward. When it comes to Satan's default mode, he certainly is the father of lies. He is a deceiver, and that is exactly what he's using here with, with Eve and with Adam. Uh, he is the father of lies. And I'm sure you're aware of this if you've been around the block for a while. There's a lot of ways to lie, right? Yeah, you know, it's not just saying the contrary thing. Sometimes uh, there's quite an, a craft, there's quite, quite an art to lying. Maybe you know someone in your life that is a good liar, right? Uh, you can twist the truth. You can just leave out one detail that really kind of changes the whole story, right? You can even change your tone, uh, and the way you say things that you know is kind of leading people into something that's deceptive. And Satan is the master of this. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. And that is exactly what he is doing here with Adam and Eve. Now, I want to go even a little deeper with this because I think this could be very helpful for us. I want you to, again, turn to someone uh, that's, that's in the room with you and think of a lie that Satan uses to deceive us, like a specific lie, you know, something that he might say that people might believe, uh, and that maybe he does it all the time. Think of a lie. I'll give you a few seconds here. Maybe you can say it to someone else. Think of a lie that Satan uses with us. Obviously, I have one to offer to you, uh, and one that I feel a great conviction for, because I've seen it work. Uh, certainly, I probably... Uh, point in my life as to when God has, has uh, lied to me uh, in this regard. Uh, and this is my example to you. Uh, Satan lies to us by saying to us, you're the only one. You're the only one. Think about that. You're the only one who's going through that. You're the only one who has that dark secret. You're the only one who has that flaw. You're the only one born into a family like that. You're the only one um, without a child. You're the only one that's not married. You're the only one. You're the only one. You're the only one. When Satan uses that, he's being smart because what he's doing is that he's dividing us. He's isolating us. And when we're isolated and away from the flock, that's when we are most vulnerable. That's when we are weakest. Just think of any sort of uh, nature video that you've seen, right? You see the predator kind of, uh, you know, pursuing the flock. What does it do? It identifies maybe a younger one, a weak one. And what does it do? It, it gets it away from the flock where, it's, where, where he can attack it, where he can kill it, where he can, where he can render it, you know, uh, inactive, uh, lukewarm, I'm kind of thinking spiritually now, right? And that's exactly what Satan does to us all the time. He says to us, you're the only one. He actually does this in the life of Elijah, the great prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. If you're familiar with his story, uh, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, Elijah has done great things for the Lord. Fire has come down, consumed this altar that he had doused in water, right? It was a very public portrayal of God's power. And right at the end of chapter 18, we see that Elijah is on a high. 
He is, you know, being used of the Lord. And then chapter 19 uh, begins. In the very first few verses, Jezebel sends a letter to him basically saying, I'm going to kill you. And Jezebel was uh, kind of notorious. So upon receiving that, um, Elijah grows despondent. Uh, He runs away. He wishes he was never born. Uh, And he goes off, I think it was a 40-day journey, into the wilderness by himself, isolated. He goes into a cave. It doesn't get any more, uh, you know, despondent than that. And then on two occasions, he says the very same thing. He says, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And if you keep reading in the chapter, we, we know that God had different plans. He wasn't the only one. He was believing a lie, but indeed God had other plans. He had, he had saved hundreds of, of true prophets that would come to his aid and be victorious with him. So let's not be that way. Let's not um, fall to that lie that we are prone to. Uh, I'm certain that we are prone to, and that is to believe that we are the only one. So certainly Satan's default mode is he is a deceiver and he is a master liar. Now, as we move on, I want to now talk about the default mode of man. The default mode of man. And for that, I want to, I want to um, highlight the response that Eve gives to the serpent. The serpent questions the command of the Lord. Did, what did he really say about this tree? Eve responds well, but there's some things that she, she doesn't use and she adds, which is kind of odd. Some commentators will just point out the fact that she doesn't name the tree as a tree of knowledge and good and evil. Maybe that's a good thing, or maybe that's a bad thing, maybe it's a small thing. But maybe more importantly is that she adds to the command. By the way, the command is found in just in the preceding chapter, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. She actually adds and she says, uh, neither shall you touch it. And this somewhat minor, but I think speaks to the human, to man's default mode, is that we, we don't pay attention, we don't respect, we don't revere God's commands the way that we should. Um, I think, uh, as stated in, in his word, they are meant to be held, held up, to be memorized, uh, to be respected, and to be followed to the T. And, and, and often enough, um, you know, we're prone to, to not at, at times, just not adhering to them, not respecting them, not even knowing God's commands, right? Think of it this way. Let's say you're, you're building something. Maybe it's a deck in your backyard. Maybe you're laying a floor in your kitchen. I've done that. Uh, think about maybe the first thing you do, the, the cornerstone. That's kind of an old school biblical way of putting it. Uh, the, the cornerstone is extremely important, right? Everything's going to build off of that. Now, if the cornerstone is just off by, by just a little bit, a millimeter, at the onset, in the beginning there, maybe it won't matter, right? But as you build off of that, and maybe your building structure gets bigger and bigger, that defect, that error there, uh, will be more evident as you keep on going. Uh, and it could be even, if you think about it in a spiritual sense, it could be deadly, God's commands, God's commands, his guidelines, his statutes matter greatly. It matters that we know them, which means we must know his word and we must follow them. Look at how Joshua chapter 1 verse 7 puts it. 
Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. God has set his precepts for us. Let's know them. Let's not add to them as Eve uh, did. Now, secondly, when it comes to man's default mode, um, I want to offer you that at the core of who we are is that we are influential with each other. We are connected in a lot of ways. What I do, let me give you an example, what I do affects, say, my son, right? Uh, What I do uh, affects my wife. We are all somehow connected, and we see it clearly here and biblically here through the actions of Adam. What Adam did, what Adam and Eve did, has a direct effect on us now. It it has, it's like a ripple effect. I'm sure you've heard it uh, put that way. Let me read from Romans 5, verse 12, uh, as this is very important. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Through one man came disobedience, came death, came this separation from God. Now, if you were to continue to read in Romans chapter 5, you would see that there's another one man, there's another man, the second Adam being Jesus Christ. Through that man came obedience, sacrifice, and true life. And we'll get to him a little, la- a little later on. But again, the human default mode is that we are connected. The actions that we do affect others. Now, third and finally, under this um, default mode of man is the fact that um, we cover up our shame. Let's go back to verse 7 and read it here. Chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 7 says this, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This behavior here is quite indicative of a human default mode. It is indicative of who we are at the core, right? This outward shame that Adam and Eve now now felt was just an indication of what they felt inside of their inward shame. This is how... Griffith Thomas, a commentator on the book of Genesis, puts it. They soon, they soon had a sense of guilt. At once their eyes were opened and they became conscious of the shame associated with their wrongdoing. The human default mode uh, makes, us, makes us conscious of our imperfections. Um, I'm sure if we were together you could say amen to that, right? Uh, we're, we're very in tune with our flaws. Uh, inward flaws, out, outer flaws, and, and are, are, we are hardwired to say, I've got to cover it up. Now, when it comes to spiritually, uh, it's, it's the same case. We think, oh, I can, I can show up, I can, I can uh, show up and uh, present myself to God, and I can just uh, appear, um, appear righteous by doing, you know, you fill in the blank, uh, by, by serving here, by doing this righteous act there. Uh, we think it is our human default mode that covering ourselves up with righteous deeds is going to be enough. But this king, who we have to present ourselves to, is different. His demands are perfection, something that we can never, uh, 
you know, give to him. Now, um, God knows that this is our human default mode. He knows that we are prone to thinking that our righteousness is what will, will get us to stand in front of him acceptably. And he addresses this all through scripture. I, I love it. Uh, let me give you three examples, again, where God says, your righteousness is just not enough. Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, God says, Do not say in your heart, it is because my righteousness that the Lord brought me in. Judges 7, 2, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand uh, has saved me. My own doing, my own righteousness, righteousness my own uh, manufactured fig leaves is enough to get me in. And that is a lie, right? And then Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you'll be familiar with, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of our doing, so that no one may boast. God knows that this is our default setting, to think that it is our righteousness that merits us a right standing before Him. These are our fig leaves, and this is why the behavior of Adam and Eve is so insightful and should help us as we continue the rest of the Bible and as we look at our lives, because we can certainly be that way, right? Uh, and this is where I want to remind you of something that I said earlier. Uh, I asked you to be honest and for your heart to be open, right? Um, if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, we do this often. We do this, goodness, on an hourly basis where we think that our acceptance, our righteousness comes from our works, the way we speak, the way we perform at work, the way we appear at church. It's this, uh, it's this default setting, this hardwiring in us that says, I have shame and I have to cover it up. And for many of us, for many people, maybe I don't want to say us, but for many people, uh, they're quite good at it. Uh, on the outside, it looks like everything's good. But inwardly, um, there, there's other coverings that need to be uh, provided and need to be accepted and need to be used. And we'll get to that a little later on. Let's move on to our third and final point here. Uh, I want to talk about the default mode of God. Uh, the modus operandi of God, what he has an allegiance to. He cannot help but to be this way. Let's go to verses 8 and 9, where it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, uh, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? What a great question. This is the default mode of God, is that he pursues he, he condescends, meaning he comes down to our level and he, he, he pursues a relationship with us. Um, did he know where they were? He knew where they were. He knows everything. He had just made the world, right? He, he knows everything. He, he knew the treachery, the, the betrayal that had just happened. But what is he doing here? He's pursuing a relationship. He's giving Adam and Eve um, a chance to say, I've messed up. Please forgive me. But do they do that? I could have added this to the second point, and I just didn't have time. Again, what is a human default mode? To shift the blame. To, before looking at yourself, you look at others. 
right? And what, is, uh, what does um, Adam say? The woman whom you gave me. You could make an argument that not only is he saying the woman made him do it, but that God himself. And then what does the serpent say? The, uh, I'm sorry, what does uh, Eve say? Uh, she says that the serpent that, uh, made me do it. So we have shifting the blame there, a huge uh, flaw of us uh, humans. Uh, we, we do that all the time. But the main point that I want to uh, stress here is that, again, God comes down, he's patient, he's compassionate, and he gives them an opportunity to confess, and they don't. But yet he pursues them. Now, the greater point and the greater illustration, the very vivid illustration, comes from verse 21. We jump to verse 21 there after 13. Let's read it again. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. A short verse that may be overlooked. Okay, he provides for them. That's good. But man, it really reveals something, especially if you contrast it with verse 7. Now, in chapter 3, we have two clothings. Verse 7 says that Adam and Eve manufactured, they made for themselves fig leaves, right? And now we have a second clothing in verse 21, these animal skins that now God provides. Now, I don't have to tell you, that to provide animal skins, there had to be bloodshed, right? Now, I'll get to that in just a second, and there's a reason why this is such a vivid illustration of essentially what the gospel is and God's sacrifice. But I first want to highlight these fig leaves, because you can't appreciate what God provides for us unless you really know our depravity and, and the state in which we find ourselves in. Uh, I love the way, again, that Griffith Thomas puts it regarding the fig leaves and their inadequacy. He says, this was far too slight a covering for so deep a shame. This was far too slight a covering for so deep a shame. The chasm that Adam had made between him and his maker was immense. And there was nothing that any fig leaves, any human manufacturing, you know, on our best day. What does Isaiah, Isaiah 64 tell us? It says, our works are as filthy rags before a holy and perfect king. This, this, uh, this space between us, this division, this separation is way too big. There must be a sacrifice and that sacrifice must be a perfect one. I love the way Galatians 3.27 puts it and addresses this idea of being robed in his righteousness. Uh, Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, we have been robed in his righteousness. Let me read that again. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that's uh, verse 27. We have put on Christ. All throughout Scripture, there's this illusion to being robed in garments that are acceptable, in garments that are provided beyond ourselves. Uh, and here we see the same thing. Uh, on the one side, we see man, his uh, feeble attempts to cover up, uh, the inward shame that they felt. And now we have this animal that has been slaughtered, uh, blood that has been shed to properly cover man. That right there is the gospel. And that right there is God's default mode, his modus operandi, the way that he um, functions and what he provides for us. 
What what God does, is, it, what he's about, is that he restores that which has been broken. Uh, he redeems that which has been lost. He provides a way of salvation for us, the only way possible and acceptable. This is the way of the Lord, and he has an unswerving allegiance to it. We see it now at the very beginning uh, as he comes onto the stage, and we will see it all throughout Scripture. We'll continue to see it over and over again. Salvation comes through him and through him alone. Now, I want to close here by reading uh, a great passage in Scripture that I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, it is a highlight, highlight of the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Just listen as I hear this, uh, as I, excuse me, as I um, read this, and really think about how these truths in Romans 8 apply to what happened in, in Genesis chapter 3. I'll be reading again from Romans eight thirty-one to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, excuse me, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though Adam's sin build the separation from our Heavenly Father, uh, because of Jesus Christ, we can be united once again. So I ask you the same question that God asked Adam and Eve. Where are you? Think about that. Where are you? Maybe more indicative is where has your heart gone? Where is your heart? Are you you relying on the self-made fig leaves that really point to uh, self-righteousness and putting things on yourself? Or are you relying on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his blood that was shed on the cross. Those are your two choices. Uh, And I want to challenge you to think about where you lie. Uh, Even if you're a believer, again, this is, for me, it's an everyday struggle to rely on myself or to truly place my hope, place my trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, I encourage you with that. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this beautiful illustration, Lord, not only here but throughout all of Scripture. And then we get to even the Gospels where we see that Jesus Christ indeed came, indeed was the perfect sacrifice, and indeed rose again. Lord, and I pray, um, thanking you for that, Lord, I pray that you would humble us uh, by that reality and that we would live a life that is humbled uh, and that it was that is empowered um, by that reality, Lord, that we would trust in your deeds and your works as opposed to ours, Lord. Uh, 
Thank you. Uh, I pray in the beautiful, in the great, and sufficient name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.